Today we are in Luke chapter 21 from verses 20 down to verse 28. But just by way of context, let me read beginning in verse 5. This is what God's word says. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Now verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that by your Spirit, You would open our eyes that we might see that which flesh cannot see. And so believe and trust the words of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. When we read through the Old Testament, especially the prophets, we see over and over again this announcement of the coming day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, day of the Lord. And the way that it is described is that it will be the most awful and terrible day. The prophet Amos says in Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. 
saying, you think the day of the Lord is going to be a fun party? Why would you want it to come? It is going to be dread and darkness. Again, Isaiah says in Isaiah 13, 6, uh, 13, 6, Wail, weep, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come, and therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them, and they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Now, why must this day attributed to the Lord, day of the Lord, be so terrible? Well, because Isaiah continues in his prophecy, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. See, the day of the Lord is the day when the Lord comes down to earth to bring righteous judgment upon an unrighteous world. And it is a horrific day of the outpouring of the justice of divine wrath. And yet at the same time, when we read through the Old Testament, the prophets also talk about the day of the Lord in these wonderful terms of blessing and joy. The same Isaiah who prophesied thus says also, Isaiah 28, 5, that in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Zechariah 9, 16, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for, the, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land. Now how can they both be true? How can the day of the Lord be both a terrible day and a glorious day? Because again, it is a day when God comes down to the world in the fullness of his glory. And his infinite holy light will radiate through the earth as he descends in his heavenly majesty. And in the presence of the holy, every speck of darkness will be cast out. And so there will be horrible wrath and destruction for the wicked as they are cast out into the outer darkness away from the presence of the Lord and away from his holy light. But for all who have been brought into his marvelous light, for all who have been made children of light, they, as Jesus said elsewhere, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father this is the day that is coming upon the whole world at the end of the age it is the day of god's final visitation when he will come and cleanse the world of sin and renew the world in perfect righteousness which we all long for and desire and for all who have been cleansed by his grace and forgiven of sin and clothed with the righteousness of christ it will be for them the day of sheer ecstasy and blessed hope. But for those who reject the mercy of Christ unto the end, they will be swept away by the cleansing flood of divine wrath. But in every announcement of divine wrath that we see in the Bible, we must not fail to feel the pulse of God's kindness and mercy. 
that in love, that in love for sinners, he warns sinners of the wrath to come, that they might escape it. The fact that God warns of wrath at all is the outflow of his genuine compassion and grace that he desires sinners to repent and find refuge in Christ his Son. And it is this same spirit of mercy that carries these words of Jesus in his Olivet Discourse. It is his merciful warning to flee from the wrath to come. And the wrath that Jesus has in view, he begins with the impending judgment upon Jerusalem that would come in just a few decades from when he spoke these words, uh, the wrath that came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then Jesus expands and broadens the view to the day of ultimate judgment upon the whole world at his coming, the great day of the Lord. Because the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel in the first century is a microcosmic concentration and foretaste of the judgment of God that is coming upon all the nations of the world in the final century on the last day. As we discussed last week, we, we need to understand that these are not two separate events, although they are separated by time, but they are interconnected in the mind and will of God as the outpouring of his righteous judgment upon the world beginning in 70 AD with Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins in verse 20 by saying that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now history tells us that the Roman army under Titus besieged Jerusalem and surrounded it on every side to the result of utter carnage and destruction. And it's just as Jesus had said earlier in verse 6, the days will come as the disciples were admiring all the external beauties and the architecture of the temple, he said the days will come, all these things that you see, uh, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another, but they will all be destroyed and crushed. And that's exactly what happened. Now, when we read the history books about ancient Rome or ancient Jewish history of the first century AD, we're given a window into the unspeakable destruction that fell upon Jerusalem and, and the people in it. But in those history books, you will see, as history books do, described primarily as this tragic political event. But that's just looking at it from a human perspective. When in reality, it was primarily a spiritual event of divine judgment. In that this was not the wrath of Rome, but this was the wrath of God through Rome. Notice the language that Jesus uses. He says, Jerusalem's desolation has come near. Now this should key us into what's happening. Jerusalem, the holy city, and the temple, which was meant to be and designed to be, to represent the garden of God on earth, and that's why we see all the architectural details uh, that depict garden-like aesthetics. The garden of God on earth, as it were, would be decimated into a wilderness. That's what the word desolation means, a desolate wilderness. And the reason why is because God's judgment was to give over the city and the temple into the reality of what it really was that despite its outward appearance of adornment and beauty, 
that it was, in fact, a spiritually barren land, a spiritual wasteland as God saw it. And so God would desert it. It would become a spiritual desert because it was nothing more than a building and a city and some walls devoid of the true preaching of God's word but filled with just mindless man-made religion of, of mechanical rituals of just going through the motions with no true knowledge of the living God and seeking Him in spirit and in truth. Despite all the out, outside appearances, inside the people were all the same enslaved to sin and ungodliness. And perhaps the same can be said of many churches today. Nothing more than adorned buildings but spiritually dead inside because the gospel is not proclaimed. And so what Jerusalem had become was the holy city in name only and God would now give it over to its true spiritual barrenness. You see, God's judgment in destroying Jerusalem was Him turning it into a physical and visible wilderness in order to match the spiritual and invisible wilderness that it really was on the inside. And in this way, God was giving over Jerusalem to itself, to its real condition. And in the same way, the day will come when God will no longer restrain His hand upon the world. And He will show this fallen world for the wilderness that it really is. You know, as we live in this country of uh, civilized order, for the most part, and uh, first world amenities, especially here in the Bay Area, uh, it's so easy to get lost in the comforts of the world and forget the spiritual reality that we live in a world dead in sin. We live in a dead world. We live in a graveyard spiritually speaking. And the only reason we can enjoy any of this prosperity and civility and semblance of decency is because of God's common grace to mankind to preserve a functioning society so that within such a society, there would stand and exist His church and that His church might be able to go out and be part of this functioning society in order to testify of the gospel and win people to Christ to engage in the society with other people. But there will come a day when desolation and destruction will come upon the whole world as the spiritual reality of this fallen world becomes physically manifest in actuality. And until that day comes, just as it was for the first century Jews, is Jesus' gracious warning to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 21, he says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Why? Because it's a city marked for destruction. But do you see why Jesus said these words? It's that those who hear and take heed they might be spared from the wrath that was coming. These are words of, of not angry threat, but of divine salvation and mercy. 
And those who took Jesus' words seriously, they fled and they were spared. In fact, what's interesting is that the ancient church historian Eusebius from the 3rd century, he records for us in his writing, the history of the church, that when the days came for the Roman army to besiege Jerusalem, the Christians who were members of the church in Jerusalem, now we see the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts, don't we? Those Christians, they took heed to the words of Christ. And having been commanded by prophetic revelation, they fled across the Jordan eastward to a town called Pella in the region of Perea. And they sought shelter there and they did not suffer the wrath that came upon Jerusalem. You see, just like in the days of Noah with the flood, and just like in the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, the righteous believed the oracles of judgment and were able to flee from the wrath to come. But the unrighteous and the unbelieving stayed put inside Jerusalem, despite repeated warnings. Ah, it's fine. That would never happen. We're God's chosen people. Oh, this is a holy city. No, we're good to go. And they suffered the wrath of God through the desolation that came from the hand of the Romans. And his wrath is described in this way, verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. The things written in the Old Testament concerning the judgment of the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness and unrepentance, it would be fulfilled and brought upon that generation. These are the curses of the law in the Old Covenant. As God said in Leviticus 26, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. This was the lost curse. But at the end of the day, even in the Old Covenant, the grounds and the basis for incurring the full measure of the curse of God's wrath was simply unrepentance. God always, even in the Old Testament, even under the Old Covenant, gave people opportunity after opportunity to repent. God never, ever, ever, has never, and will never Refuse those who repent and turn to him for mercy and grace. And we know this because even within Leviticus 26, after saying what he just said, God would later say in verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will bless them. But Israel's history throughout the Old Testament was what? Stubborn unrepentance a refusal to listen to the prophets calling them to repent. And it was just the same in Jesus' day in the first century. Israel as a nation, the Jews, refused to repent and receive Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah for the forgiveness of their sins. And so the curses of the law would come upon them. And if you reject mercy, then you will receive justice, the due wages of sin. And it will be a terrible price to pay. 
Verse 23, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Now, the ESV translation, which I use, it says that there will be great distress upon the earth, but a more literal translation would be a great distress upon the land. And depending on the context, it can mean the whole earth, or it can mean a specific land and region within the earth. And here, if you look at the verse, the context is obvious that this means, that it means here the land of Israel, because it's in parallel with the next phrase, wrath against this people, this Jewish people. Because the curse of the law would come upon them. Because they rejected the Christ who would become the curse of the law for them by being hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 And that's why we see this language of woes for pregnant and nursing women because this is coming from Deuteronomy 28, another key Old Testament passage that expounds and elaborates on the curses of the law. There God warns uh, that, that the judgment they will experience will be so bad that pregnant women and young mothers would wish that their children had not been born. Because, as God says in Deuteronomy 28, an army will besiege them and surround them and cut them off and they will be so starved of resources and the delirium of wartime will so ravage the people that, and this is graphic language in Deuteronomy 28, that even the most dignified of women will resort to eating the flesh of their own infants. Now how bad can you imagine it must have been for that to happen. And eventually they would all get slaughtered anyway. That's what happened. And everyone who refused to heed the warning, they stayed in Jerusalem. And indeed, the Romans came and surrounded them and hemmed them in. But it was too late. They couldn't escape it anymore. And that's why Jesus says, run to the hills. Don't stay inside the city. And if you're out of the city, don't come into it. These words were for all who would listen. Because it is God's desire that none perish even under His rightful wrath. Remember, remember the face of Christ. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem earlier in Luke 19. And that through His face we see the glory of God and that God's wrath is a weeping wrath. He genuinely does not desire that any should perish. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But if one resists to the end and rejects his offer of forgiveness and his provision for escaping his wrath, and if one insists on staying inside the city of destruction, then wrath will come and it'll be too late when it comes. And that's what happened in 70 AD. But friends, that was all but a shadow of pointing to still a greater wrath to come. You see, we have to understand that all throughout history, God does things in patterns. Which is why when you read Deuteronomy 28 and all the curses of the law that I had just mentioned, we see it fulfilled even before 70 AD, we see it fulfilled within the Old Testament first in 586 BC when the Babylonians came and besieged Jerusalem because the nation refused to repent until the end 
despite all the warnings by the prophets. And so Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the people were sent off to exile. This is what happened in the Babylonian invasion. Now, now listen to the language of Deuteronomy 28 coming through these verses in 2 Kings 25.1 and describing what happened when Babylon came into Jerusalem. That in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. That's Deuteronomy 28. And Lamentations 4.9, as the prophet Jeremiah weeps over what had happened and describes what had happened, he says, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Deuteronomy 28, once again. And yet, the same language is being used for what would be fulfilled in 70 AD, just as we see here Jesus foretelling what would happen. And Jesus would later say again, in Luke 23, while going up to the cross, in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. But what happened in 586 BC, and again repeated in 70 AD, all of this is culminating to the last day. You see, these are all crescendos throughout redemptive history that are culminating and amplifying toward the day of the ultimate fulfillment of wrath and desolation poured out upon the whole world. What you see in the horror of Jerusalem's destruction in 586 BC and again in 70 AD, these are all signs and warnings of the greater wrath to come at the end of the age. Hence, Jesus transitions the thought in verse 24. He says, they, the, 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 the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, scattered, no more Jerusalem, because Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. The city will no longer have the center stage in, in, in the age of redemption. That's long gone until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the first century marked a shift in the next and the final movement of redemptive history in which God would now turn his focused attention to all the nations of the world. Not just one nation. And we have to understand that the reason why it was the nation of Israel that received such focused divine judgment as a foretaste of the final judgment in the first century was because God the Son came to them first, to no other nation. And they as a nation rejected him. And that's why Jesus would say often throughout the Gospels, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why for the most part, Jesus didn't go elsewhere that's why we, we read the gospels we never see jesus jesus didn't go travel to china to preach the gospel he didn't go to france we don't see him in greenland but christ came to israel and revealed himself first to them and throughout the three years of his public ministry 
He traveled all over the region to the ends of the land of Israel, proclaiming the good news. But as John 1, 11 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so it ended for them with the day of reckoning for their unbelief and unrepentance remaining in their sin. And in the same way, just as God came to the nation of Israel, so now he sends forth his church, the the body of Christ himself, to journey to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. The church is is the hands and feet of Christ. And when the times of the Gentiles, when this age of all the nations are fulfilled, this present age of the church's witness to all nations, then in the same way, this final movement of history will conclude a day with a day of reckoning for all who did not heed his loving warning to flee from the wrath to come. And it, it will end just as it did in the first century, but in the fullest measure and in the utmost scale of the whole world. And this is what it will be like on that day. This will be the sign of the end of the age that the final day of the Lord is imminent, verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, do you sense the sheer scale of what's going on here as Jesus describes what is to come? That when we reach the climax and finale of redemptive history and the day of the Lord draws imminently near, all of creation will begin to tremble in preparation to receive her creator as he comes to judge the world in righteousness. And this isn't just some poetic, theoretical idea, but the universe will begin to literally quake. Remember in Exodus chapter 19, when God revealed himself to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, and it says that the Lord came down He manifested a physical presence, a theophany as we would call it. He came down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And when he did, it says that there were thunders and lightnings and a loud trumpet blast. And the Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the whole mountain, the whole mountain trembled greatly. Can you imagine a mountain trembling? And the people of Israel were so filled with fear that that they said to Moses, why don't you go up and you talk to God, but we're going to stay here because we don't want to die. And yet all of that in Exodus 19, that was still God's glory covered and veiled. It was God just letting out a little bit of a visible form and appearance so that they might fear him and tremble before him. That visible representation was him still concealing his infinite glory and holiness because if he hadn't, they would have all died instantly. But on this last day, if the Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai trembled, 
in Exodus 19. On the last day, how much more? When the Son of Man will come down in a cloud with power and great glory in the uninhibited revelation of His majesty. And that's why it's not just a mountain, but the sun and the moon and the planets and the entire universe will tremble. And so as, as that day draws imminently near, people and nations will be struck with the fear, with the fear of God that they have never known. This will not be like the fears of world wars or, or pestilences or global economic crises. As we saw last week, those are not signs of the end. But this will be an existential fear down to their bones. People will end up questioning everything of what they thought they knew because the framework of the universe will begin to crumble. The very ground on which they felt the sense of safety and assumed would always be there will be overturned. The sunrise and sunset that they took for granted, not knowing that it was God's common grace all along that brought the sun up every day upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike, the sun will begin to dim like a light bulb that's lost its lifespan. The oceans will begin to erupt with chaos and will no longer look like pools of water from afar, but they will begin to look more like boiling geysers. Roaring and raging in uncontrollable surges. The laws of nature will begin to fade inasmuch as heaven and earth will pass away. You see, all that mankind believed and confided in for basic order and security of their existence, it will all be shaken up. And as Isaiah said, people's hearts will melt. On that day, they will faint with fear at the, at the existential confusion of it all. Nations will be distressed from perplexity. What is happening? What is this world which we thought we knew? What is this planet which we thought our modern science had all the answers for? Because the fabric of the cosmos will begin to be unraveled and undone at the coming of the Son of Man at God's final visitation upon the world for His final judgment. And all who remain in their sins, rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior and refuge, there will come upon them a desolation like they could never imagine. It will make the devastation of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as horrific as it is, it will make it seem like child's play. Friends, if you're here today and you are not secure and safe in Christ by faith, you must understand that whether you think it or not, whether you believe it or not, such a day is coming upon the whole world. This is real. It's going to happen. This is how the world ends. The world, no matter what people say, no matter what happens, the world is not going to end with nuclear bombs. 
The world is not going to end with climate catastrophes. But the world will end from the visitation of the Creator and righteous judge. This is real. This is truth. And in fact, it is so real that for our certainty of the truth, God even manifested a foretaste of it in past history to give us a tangible example and preview of what is coming. Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD was not just a war or some political event. And we know this because Jesus, the Son of God, foretold it prophetically, supernaturally, almost 40 years before it happened. This was a supernatural event to be a sign for all the generations to come of the end that is coming. It was God's warning and guarantee to the world of the greater wrath that is coming upon the world. And by it, he announces to the world, flee from the wrath to come. Flee the city of man marked for destruction and flee to the city of God by faith in Christ who is the door and gate of the sheep. Enter into him by faith. Now you might be hearing all this and saying, my goodness, I came to church hoping to feel a little bit better about myself and what's up with all this talk about the wrath of God? I thought God is love. Yes, absolutely God is love. He is the perfection of love. And it is, listen carefully, it is because God is love that He is wrath. Because holy, perfect, Genuine love loves what is good and hates what is evil. Romans 12, 9. Listen, it is not love for someone to affirm and permit murder, violence, and all kinds of evil to exist and flourish. That's not love. Love hates those things. Love seeks to eradicate those things. For the sake of others, for the sake of the world, for the sake of society, for the sake of that which is good and pure and right. That is love. Love hates what is evil. Then how much more with God, who is the perfection of love? It is because God is perfect in pure love that he cannot tolerate even a speck of sin and evil. And at his appointed time, you can be sure that he will eradicate every speck of sin and evil from this world. But friends, that is the problem, that you and I are that. We are sinners. We are the sin and evil that has turned this world, created by God, as good. And we are the ones who have corrupted it and turned it into the desolate wilderness that it is, marred by sin, filled with pain and suffering, and wickedness, and injustice, and lovelessness. And before God's holy judgment, it will be shown that every single one of us is infinitely guilty because God is infinitely holy. And He demands perfect sinlessness. And by virtue of our sinfulness, it will be shown that we have all played a part in contributing to the wickedness of this world. And so you see, God's wrath actually reveals 
His love. In that on the last day, He will manifest holy love upon the world by cleansing it of all sin and evil, including sinners and evildoers like you and me. That's when heaven will come upon earth and this world will be renewed as a world of love in perfect beauty and spotless purity. But this is the good news that that's not the end of the story. This is the gospel that, that, that yes, God's love is revealed in his wrath upon sinners. But his love is most fully revealed, most perfectly revealed in his grace towards sinners. Through Jesus Christ whom he has sent, because he came to take the place of sinners like you and me, that he might go to the cross and take upon the full outpouring of God's wrath for the sake of those he came to save. You see, just as the destruction of Jerusalem was not some political event, but a spiritual event, so Jesus' crucifixion was not just physical suffering of agony and death, as bad as it was, but it was spiritual. Because on the cross, the full measure of divine wrath and anger and desolation was poured out upon Christ. Which is why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what was happening. Because he had swapped places with sinners he came to save. Who would otherwise have to spend an eternity crying out those words in the desolation of eternal forsaking away from God's presence forever. But you see, this is the love of God that he pours out wrath upon sinners. That's how God's love is revealed. But it is most perfectly and fully revealed in that God's love is poured out upon sinners as God's wrath is poured out upon the sinless Savior who took the place of sinners, who received divine wrath as though he were guilty of their sins. And to all who confess their sin who confess that they deserve to be the ones on the cross, but who believe that Jesus took their place, then as they have believed, so it will be. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. This is the gospel. This is the Savior to whom you must flee for refuge while there is still time. Because when that day comes and you are left without a Savior, you will not be able to endure the wrath that is coming. And it will be too late. Friend, let the day of the Lord be a glorious day for you. And hear the love of God's tender voice in his warnings of judgment saying, come to my son, hide yourself in him. And Jesus promises, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is God's promise that you can bank your eternity on, that you can rest the end of the age on. And church, we know the certainty of this promise, don't we? Because what does Jesus say to us 
who have fled and found refuge in him. Having described this terrible day that is coming upon the world, he then says in verse 28, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I love that. And all that will come upon the world. They will be terrified. Their hearts will melt. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to be afraid. On that day, I want you to stand tall and confident because that day is the day of your reward, your redemption. Yes, we've already been redeemed and secured in our redemption, but we await the day when all the promises of our redemption will be realized and consummated. The day when God will complete the fullness of redemption, both body and soul. And we will be perfected in holiness, raised to glory and the imperishable immortality in the likeness of our risen Savior for whom we have longed. Christian, let this verse be your daily encouragement and your daily perspective through every struggle and trial and discouragement. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you, you, you rejoice, rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. But the day is coming when the one whom you love and long to see, you will see him. And your weak little heart will bloom with a joy and a relief that cannot be fathomed. And the day of the Lord will be for you the day of your great reward as you receive and welcome Christ himself, your hope of glory. Because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and we will all be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is our consolation. And so, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, therefore, encourage one another with these words and do so all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the mercy and salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our mighty fortress and our sufficient refuge in whom we have hidden ourselves and are secure forever. Lord, again, I pray that for those here who do not know you, who do not realize, who are deaf and blind to the reality of heaven and earth and the urgency of the things that are to come, Lord, that you would awaken their sleeping souls and that you would bring them into the refuge of Christ. And Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen your church and that as we now take the Lord's Supper, that you would use these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup for the extraordinary purpose of assuring us of our belonging to Christ, to know that because we have taken him, 
and He has taken us, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and we have confidence to raise our heads on the last day. Help us to believe these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.